So this passage has a pretty heavy voice to it. it, it it's pretty serious. It's pretty sober-minded. And about halfway through the week as I was studying for it, I thought, I wish I had given this one to Jonathan or Derek. <laughs> I'd rather they be the heavy voice. I like to be the good news guy. Uh, so it is, this isn't bad news. I will definitely say that. But it is a, uh, it's the part of the letter that really calls for a high degree of sober-mindedness. And so I'll just give that to you up front as we go through it so that you can take it that way. And, you know, it's up to you and the Holy Spirit to discern to what degree do you need to hear that. Is there some level of correction or challenge in here? Or can you simply thank God that he has, you know, moved you beyond this and you're perfect now and fully complete? So you don't need the word. But let's get into it and uh, just talk about essentially what it says. All right, I have to catch up in my notes to where you are, Jeremy. So essentially, a couple weeks ago, we talked about an integrated will. The conclusion of the passage I taught two weeks ago was this idea that God is working to make us a a whole person, not fragmented. As we grow from childhood, in childhood, we start with kind of a sense of innocence and life is simple, and we're a fairly holistic person, we're not hypocritical, we're not um, confused about who we are as a person, we're pretty confident, we're pretty trusting, but then as we grow older, um, we kind of start to fragment as people, um, we, we are unsure of who we are, and we kind of even become divided. A lot of times that division will come between our heart and our mind, so in our mind we have an idea of who we want to be, we have an idea of what we value and what's important to us, but then uh, in our heart we feel differently because of maybe what we've experienced. If we've been wounded or we've been uh, traumatized in some way, we can become divided. And we still kind of know what's right, but it doesn't feel like that's what's happening in my soul. And so again, we become divided. And throughout our lives, especially if we are far from God, we can become pretty disintegrated. We can become fractured. And we believe one thing, but we act another way, and then we feel another way. And beyond Jesus reconciling us with the Father, his goal is to, is to make us whole again. And that's what it means to, be, to grow, to mature. Even the term sanctification is this idea of becoming complete again, complete in Christ. And, and Jesus puts our parts back together and helps them to be harmonious so that we can be the man, the woman that we desire to be and that he desires us to be. So this particular passage today focuses on this idea of the heart. So the things that we feel, uh, it's, it's about uh, emotions, about the visceral side of life. Where is your heart? So that's where you can be concentrating today as, as we talk. Is my heart where I want it to be? Is my heart integrated with who I am? Am I living consistently with how I feel and what I think? And there's some real help in here to, to help us uh, become more integrated. So, first of all, um, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? There's the heart, desires that battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. It's an extreme word. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So James is, again, remember he's talking to his church that is no longer in the same city he is. He's in Jerusalem, and he had a church in Jerusalem. It was the first Jewish church that existed, and because of Roman persecution, Jews slowly trickled out of the city, and so that church got dispersed all over the world. So he's writing a letter to follow up with who the people that used to be his parishioners. And he's doing all kinds of pastoring. And so today he's talking 
for us today. He's talking about this idea here. Again, the language is pretty extreme. It says, you don't have, so you kill. Now, he's talking to Christians, and to me, that word's a little abrupt, like, wow, that's kind of extreme. And then he said, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. I believe that Paul is trying to use some fairly heavy language here to actually challenge our thinking to say, this could be more serious than you think it is. And so he's overstating so that you can kind of meet in the middle. So if the language was softer, if the language was less heavy and less violent, he would kind of be understating it for us. So he's wanting to overstate it so that we can actually come to the middle and say maybe there is more dysfunction or more quarreling or more angst or more conflict in my life than I realize. So he makes the overstatement, and then we go, well, I haven't actually killed anybody, but am I closer to that kind of violence or that kind of hatred or that kind of disintegration? And I need to be aware of it. So he's pushing us to consider if we might be more disintegrated than we would think that we are. Let's go on. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So again, lots of bad news. <laughs> um, and he's moved from one idea to the other. In that first paragraph, what he was talking about, we want something so strongly, we just go get it. We want something so badly, we're just going to go take it. So maybe you steal or you kill or you covet. You see someone else having something you desire to have and you just go get it. That's one level. And now he talks about, okay, maybe you're not that aggressive. Maybe you actually ask God for it. So you pray, God, I really want a car like the guy next door. I really want a car like the guy next door. And so now I'm being good. You know, I'm not stealing the car next door. I'm not even coveting it. I'm asking God for it. But he says, yeah, you're still missing the mark because that's something you want simply for fleshly pleasure. It's not really for for your goodness or for the goodness of the kingdom. And so it's still selfish. So bad news on two different levels. Uh, and again, probably with us in America, we're a little more sophisticated, so we're not taking and we're not killing and we're not praying for the neighbor's car. But James would have us ask today, are there other places in your heart where you have desires that you are not um, submitting to God and humbling yourself before God about? Are they? And I would say for us, symptoms are more like anxiety and fear and conflict with people. Those are the ways we manifest this angsty heart uh, that wants something and isn't getting it. So a lot of times we could say, I want a certain level of comfort or pleasure for my family, and it's not happening, so I'm anxious about it. I'm anxious about my job or about whether I'm going to get that raise or not. These are other manifestations of the same idea, that in our hearts we're not trusting, we're not believing, we're not hoping, but we are disintegrated, we're concerned, we're fearful, and we're not trusting God. That may be the way we do it in a, with a little bit more sophistication. Now he goes to a whole nother level with this next paragraph, and he says, you adulterous people. It's like, oh my gosh, that is really thick. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. And this is the one place where I might get a little bit of help from you guys, because this is where it gets kind of deep, and we have to do some sorting out. So adulterous people... Remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians, so before they became Christians, they were Judaites. They were religious um, Jews, and so they have a history of adultery and this idea of adulterous. Could anybody tell us what what he's talking about when he says, you adulterous people, what 
This is a metaphor. What's he referring to? Sorry? Straying from God, yeah. So in this metaphor, the husband would be God, and then the wife would be us, originally Israel and now the church, and then who would the lover be? Who would be the, the other lover other than God? Okay. Yeah, and in this culture, actually, things of gold and wood and silver that people would have worshipped and prayed to. Yeah, what would be the adulterer or the adulterous object in our culture today? Where might we be guilty of being adulterous with God? Okay. Status, success, my image. Safety. Yeah, absolutely. That's a soft one because it doesn't sound like a sin. Yeah, good. Wealth. Yeah. How are, now explain in particulars, how do these things actually compete with God? Like, it sounds like, can't I have both? How is this adultery? How would you describe that to one of our 12-year-olds? Right, yeah. God has said, in my relationship with you, I will provide everything. And if you will cooperate with me, and if you'll trust me, and if you'll pray to me, and if you'll submit to me, I will supply everything you need. I want to be a part of every aspect of your life. But if we choose to say, I don't, I don't trust you for that, I'm going to... I'm going to take care of that piece myself. So, sorry, but I'm just going to go get it. So that would be the difference, where the husband says, I'll provide, uh, just trust me. And we say, ah, I don't know that I'm going to get it the way I want it, so I'll go for it myself. Right, yeah, good, absolutely. Again, it's pretty hard language, but they would have understood it because throughout 400 years of prophetic history, the prophets used this term all the time, and they talked about Israel as being an adulterous people to their God. I want to dialogue with you, too, a little bit about the rest of this idea. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a friend of the world? What do you think he means by that? Okay. Yeah, huge piece of it, right. And there's some things we want to talk about that it's not. This could come across as very religious and very judgmental, and we need to strip it of all of that because that's not the case. First of all, God has created the world, the creation for us. He's provided a pretty incredible home with tons of raw resources, natural resources for us to make a life out of it. Uh, Yesterday, uh, my sister and I took my mom and dad to the Iris Garden, down by Salem, and we were walking through this garden, and it was just amazing. I thought, man, I wish this was my backyard. I would, it'd be the most incredible backyard. We just, we sat down in these uh, really comfortable Adirondack love seats and just kind of watched people, and it was, and breathed in the air. It was amazing. And I was like, God, this is so good. And he said, yeah, this is what I meant for you guys to do with creation, make something out of it. You know, I I provided seeds and trees, but you plant them where you want, as many as you want, in the form that you want to plant them. Make life amazing. There's so many different kinds of things that could be considered a garden. So God doesn't, he does want us to have fun. He does want us to have a beautiful life. So he's not talking about creation when he says the world. He's also not talking about people. And here's where we've gone wrong historically as Christians. 
we hear don't be friends with the world, and we assume that means people in the world who don't know Jesus, people who aren't Christians. Again, totally not right. We are to love every human being. We're to be hospitable towards every human being. So it's not don't be friends with non-Christians. That would be a total misinterpretation. And James would go, seriously? (laughs) So what does it mean? What's left? If it's not the planet and all that's on it, and it's not the people in the world, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? How do we define world here? Exactly. Yeah, ideologies, patterns of thinking and living without God. Basically, can we do life apart from God? Is there any way? Today, uh, there's a lot of talk in theology about we're in a culture that wants to have the kingdom of God without the king. So the values of the kingdom and actually the values of scripture are very present in our culture today. People want equity. People want fairness. People want everyone to be well cared for, which is amazing and beautiful for us. But they don't want to invite God into the pursuit of that. They want to say, education. We can do it through education. We can figure it out. So that's a part of the worldly idea, is that the world says we can live well without God. Very good. Yeah, so that's what we're talking about. Another way to talk about it is in kingdom language. So there's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of this world. So it's everything that would be their government and authority and leadership and value, priorities, like you said, Peter, ideologies, like Jonathan said, but without God in the story. Now, why is that a problem? Aren't, can't we as humans actually be fairly good at this stuff without God? <laughs> yeah, say more about that, Corinne. Yeah, we have this little problem um, with authority. We don't handle it very well. And so we, as kind of the humble, common people, we're pretty good-natured, and we have some good ideas, and I think we're generally fair. But have you noticed, whenever we tend to give authority to human beings, it changes them. And they start out ideologically positive, and they start out as giving people. But what, what would be the general reputation of people who have been in government for a long time? Are they good and loving and equitable people? No, they become partisan and sectarian and divided and there are certain things they prefer. They become deeply immoral and all of this is coming to the surface right now with so many politicians, men and women. So we don't do well with authority. On the outside, we kind of, our heads, we can know what's good and right so we make laws that make sense but our hearts don't have the capacity to be that good and so we fail. And the more authority we have, the more power we have, the more freedom we have, the more we fail. So people that have a ton of authority over people, they start taking advantage of those people, and they start abusing them and using them. So we've proven throughout history that we can't handle a kingdom very well. We can't handle governing very well. Our hearts are too corrupt. And that's why this warning to not be a friend with the world. Let's go on. Uh, This next passage is a little bit challenging. It says, or do you think the scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. 
Does anybody have any idea what I just read? There's a couple of ways to translate this scripture, and this is the way the NIV chooses to do it. And what it is saying is, do you think the scriptures are wrong when it says that God jealously longs for his Holy Spirit that he's put in us? And that's one way you could interpret this, but it's really inconsistent with the text, and it's really inconsistent with the storyline. So let me show you an alternative here on the next slide. This is another way this could be translated. Or do you think the scriptures say without reason that the spirit he has caused to dwell in us uh, is full of jealousy? This would actually probably be a more accurate translation. And it makes sense in the context that the spirit of man or of humans, not man, but the spirit of humans is a spirit that is full of jealousy. And so it always wants what other people have. And that's what the scriptures are saying. And this seems to make more sense. Any questions? Uh-huh. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why the NIV works is with that explanation. And we know that's true because the scriptures tell us that he jealously longs for us. So that's why the NIV is willing to print that. What seems inconsistent is the uh, subject here is the heart of, he- of people and the condition of people's hearts. And we've talked about envy and desire and wrong desires and that it's all in humans. And so it seems consistent to talk about, again, that jealousy within people. Neither one seems to, to teach something false. And so either one is acceptable. So, yeah. Either way, the bottom line is whatever, whatever we're talking about there, God gives us more grace. What's, why does he say that at this point in the story? Because so far it's been pretty dark. It's been very condemning. So what is this, but he gives us more grace? What does that mean? If it's more grace, what's the first grace? Yeah. Yeah, I would, wouldn't we all say that when we come to God and we um, desire to follow Jesus and we say yes to Jesus as king, the first grace that we're given, the first gift is forgiveness and a, a right relationship with the Father and with the Son and the Spirit. So that's the grace that comes first. And, of course, Paul talks about that constantly in Romans. That's the grace. So the more grace is not just to leave us as spiritual infants and say, okay, you're no longer evil, but I've made you good, but now he wants us to grow. And the idea is that if we started growing in Christ by grace, let's keep growing. Remember, Paul says in Galatians, are you going to keep taking forward what was started by faith and by grace? No, you're not going to do it in the flesh. You do it by the grace of God. And this is something to me that's so critical in this passage is that as you hear the heaviness and the discernment and the judgment of the first half, the answer is not shape up and be a better human. Stop being jealous. Stop being selfish. Come on, get your act together. God never says that. What God says is, okay, here's the reality of how it is in you, and I want to help you with that. And so just ask me. Just ask me for a new heart. Ask me for a new attitude. Ask me for new desires. 
and I will gladly give them to you. And that's why this little sentence is so critical. Because again, God doesn't ask us to finish in our flesh what he began by the Spirit. So when we read that, we should say, thank you. Thank you, God. This is the remedy for the desires within us that are wrong or twisted or upside down, is that um, God will give us the grace. And that's why the rest of this becomes very good news. So he writes, this is why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In fact, let's finish reading, and then we'll talk about all of this together. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Another critical, critical idea. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this is the way, and I would say to you that we've gone through, we're now in the fourth chapter of James And this is the first time he's given us a prescription for the remedy for everything he's been saying. So he says, be slow to anger and slow to speech and quick to listen. Uh, He says, be harmoniously in relationship with one another. He has all these things he's saying. This is what it means to be mature. And finally, he says, here's how. Here's how. So you should not receive the first three chapters of James as this prescription for what you need to do. But instead, this is how God is asking us to receive it. He's saying, kids, I love you, but you're incomplete. And there are areas in your lives that aren't healthy. And you have hearts that have twisted desires. And you have a will that's kind of selfish. And I want to help you with all of that. And so what I'm asking you to do is come to me and trust me. And I'll work that out with you. This is not Ten Commandments for Better Behavior to Be a Good Christian. This is a father gently pointing out to his very unformed kids, hey, I want you to grow. I want you to have more life and a fuller life, and I'm happy to help you with it. The one thing I need from you, it's not behavior management, and it's not you making all the changes and having resolutions about being a better Christian, but it's about you changing your heart to trust me and to submit to me and to listen to me, and I will work with you as a careful, loving father and I will help you, and I will give you grace, and I will give you a new heart, and I will give you new desires. But, it, but you have to take this posture of humility, this posture of submission. Now, submit, tough word to deal with in our culture right now. Uh, it's been pushed against for years. And to be honest, that pushback is legitimate. Um, the pushback that's been around for several decades about the idea of a wife submitting to her husband If you look at the history of husbands leading their wives, that pushback is legitimate because men have not handled authority well in the marriage relationship, and many have abused it, and many have taken away the freedom of their wife and taken away the the power of their wife in the way they've treated them. And so for women to say, I have a hard time submitting, I have a hard time with that word, we have a history that actually would say, I see why. That makes sense. And so we can't really condemn that idea when we've led so poorly as men and cared so poorly for wives, for our wives to say, this isn't working. (laughs) The good news is that's never been true of God. God has never abused anyone, and he never has used his authority to make a life smaller or under control or um, to be a slave to him. He's always made life more healthy and more free and more full. 
And so whatever your relationship with the idea of submission is, uh, if you have a hard time submitting to governmental authorities, yeah, we get that. They don't deserve it. <laughs> God still asks us to. I'm not saying that we should rebel, but if you struggle with it, I get it. Uh, when it comes to marriage and you hear that idea of submit and lead, uh, I believe that's true and it's still true, but we haven't done it very well. And so it's led to a lot of marriages where that idea of submission is really tough. And I would hope that we would, among your children, raise a new generation of men who actually use that responsibility of leadership in a new way, um, better than we're doing it, and better than those that came before us. I would love to see your sons be tenderhearted and considerate and lay themselves down for the sake of a woman so that, that he could be someone that she could trust and entrust herself with. Uh, but until such time, I get the struggle with submission. But we should never struggle with submitting to God. His intentions are always the best. So that's why God says, I'm asking you, daughters and sons, to live in this disposition of humility and submission. Not of arrogance, not of, I deserve this stuff and I should go get it. I should have whatever I want. I worked hard for it. He's asking us, please don't be like that. That attitude is you using your own flesh and your own will to get what you want in your life. That is not going to work out. You're going to wound people. You're going to do it wrong. It's going to be ugly, and there won't be community and unity and love. But instead, I need you to trust me. I need you to ask me for what you need. And I need you to wait patiently for it. Uh, if you will do this, your heart will be right. Your heart will be soft, and your heart will be integrated. And then he uses these terms that are very Old Testament. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, and, of course, there's ceremonial washing that the Jews were really familiar with, but we know the idea was get rid of the behavior that you've been um, practicing that is hurtful, that's dirty, whether it's innocent blood or just the dirtiness of selfishness. Let's wash our hands. And how do we wash our hands as Christians? What does that mean? Yeah, right? Uh, metaphorically, we wash our hands in the blood of Jesus. Not literally, but metaphorically. And what that means is that we confess. We say, God, my hands are dirty. I was selfish. I was hurtful. I took that. Forgive me. Please forgive me. And that's how we wash our hands. <clears throat> Maybe we ask someone else as well. If there's a person involved in that relationship, we confess to them. Hey, Andy, I'm sorry. What I did was really selfish when I treated you that way. Can you forgive me for that? Can you let that go? That's washing your hands. And purify your hearts. What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah, I think a part of it too is repenting and making a commitment to not keep going down that road. We can certainly abuse forgiveness and grace if we just go right back and do it again. Uh, anybody had that problem at all in a pattern in your life where you have this repeated sin and or maybe maybe someone you know, not you. <laughs> just they confess and we say I forgive you and then the next day it's like, "Dang it, there you are again." It just feels unfair to forgive them again, and yet God calls us to do it. So that's what that means. And then double-minded. We've heard that phrase before. What's the double-mindedness? Right. 
Yeah, that's the kind of one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. Now, by world, again, it's the worldly kingdom. We stay in relationship with non-Christians. We stay involved in our culture. We continue to be in creation because it's amazing, but we stay out of the ideology and the values and the ways of living that are godless. We stay away from that kind of worldliness. So, what does this mean to you and you and you and me? Where are we? And again, I would ask in the same way James did. James is pushing for us to not think this through lightly and not say, I think I'm pretty good. I'm actually not killing anyone. I'm actually not coveting having this voracious desire for something someone else has. So I'm probably good. But James today is, is pushing, is that, wait a minute, are you sure? What else might we be killing other than our neighbor to get his stuff? What kind of killing might we actually be guilty of? Killed in ourselves. Yeah, say more about that, Lee. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so there's a degree to which we kill ourselves, away from being kind of a wholehearted, peaceful, non-anxious, delightful person. I kill myself because I've got anxiety. I'm preoccupied with what I want. You want to talk to me? I'm like, uh, blah, blah, okay, okay. All I can think about right now is this. I've got to get this done. And we kill ourselves. We, we uh, kill our ability to love well, to be present in the moment with someone. Yeah, we sacrifice potential goodness. What else do we kill when we're preoccupied with? Yeah. Okay. Right. so good. That light your own torch idea too, I think part of that is God is saying receive the hand you've been dealt and, and deal with the life you've been given and trust me. 
don't want another life. Now, there's a couple of factors I want to mention here. A part of life in a broken world is suffering. And there's been some theology out there that suffering is the will of God, that he initiates it, that he causes bad things to happen to people. Oh, it's just God's will, and I'm sure it'll work out for my good. And I think there's a tremendous false teaching in that. God said earlier in James, God does not tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. But things happen when we're led astray by the evil within us. God does, however, redeem suffering. He does make something out of it. We don't believe that he initiates it or that he causes it, that he causes a woman to miscarry a child. And, and no one should say, well, that was God's will, and he'll work it out. No, that wasn't God's will. God's will is life, not death. God's will is that what begins in us as a promise comes to fruition and isn't lost. So no one should say, that's God's will, and I'm going to be okay with it. But there is tremendous suffering in the world, and suffering is very impersonal. It just, just slaps on anyone. It doesn't think, how good is this person? Ah, they're too good to suffer. Suffering just comes, knocks on the door, and pushes in. And tragic things happen to really good people and to really bad people, to all of us. And in, in that mode, we need to be like, okay, God, what are you going to do with this? How do I accept what's happened to me? And there's, again, there's a call to submission and to listen. So, Matt, what are you thinking? Totally, absolutely. And that's a part of the submission is submitting to the fact that, hey, I think I need some other people. I think I need some help. And this is so anti-American to say, you know, I'll take care of it. I'm too embarrassed. But part of the submission is not just submitting to God, but to the people God will use. And to humble ourselves and say, here's something else I'm killing, potential love, potential experience. You know, if I let myself be vulnerable enough to ask for help, I'm going to that person's going to learn to love me more, and I'm going to learn to love them in this interaction. But if I'm independent and I just get it myself, I'm killing the potential of some pretty powerful future relationships. Yeah, Kirsten? Mm. Yeah, it kills a culture of mutuality and interdependence and humility and love and compassion. I mean, would you, would you use those words to describe America? Living in America means compassion, interdependence, hope, hospitality. It's the reigning culture I live in. Not so much. I mean, it's there in bits and pieces. But that's exactly what the kingdom of God is like, and it's exactly what God is asking us to turn the culture of America into. And we could certainly do it. Eddie, what are you thinking?
Right. Yeah, so much of God's will is the process and not the outcome. And all we're thinking is outcome. I want this thing. And God will say, I'd love to give it to you, but let me create a really fun process that involves some relationship and some patience and some creativity. And maybe I'll give you more than you're asking for if you do it my way. I mean, how many of you would say, that has happened for me? I've wanted something. I prayed for it. It didn't happen. It took longer. But what I got was way better than what I thought, right? Isn't that the way of God? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can say yes to that. Yeah. Yeah. This is what God is after, is a culture that is way different than the one that we experience. In the end, we will still have what we need. But what it, what the process that gets us what we need will be one that builds relationships, that builds anticipation. Uh, we've lost anticipation, which to me is so sad. Anticipation is fun. I love anticipation. Not a lot of it, you know, but some of it. And, and, man, when it just, oh, I can order it right now, boom, I just ordered a new water bottle. Wow, where's the anticipation? Where's the, I can't wait. I hope Amazon shows up in the next hour because I want it right now. (laughs) That's a horrible process. Nothing good will come out of that. Well, let's take a few minutes um, just to think about yourself. Um, We are all in process, and we all understand what we're talking about, and you are not a novice. This is not brand new to you, but where are you in the process? And where is the place that God would ask you to slow down and trust and be patient and wait? I do want to say humility is not becoming a small person. Humility is not becoming an introvert and a doormat. You can still have the loudest personality in the room. And be a ton of fun, but in your heart, be humble. Humble is a disposition before God. It's not a personality trait. So, yeah, be yourself. Be big or small, tender or tough. You can be that. But humility is about what's what's my disposition before God? Am I like, God, I'm doing fine. It's good to see you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bye. Or is it a continuous prayer throughout the day? God, I love you. Thank you that you've woken me up today to a tremendous day. What are we going to do today? What does our partnership look like today? We're friends. God, I'm your friend. You're my friend. What does it look like to be a friend of God today? And where are you not yet stepping into that? Where, where do you need to stop being arrogant or impatient or lustful and say, you know what, God, you're good. I trust you. I submit to you. The other beauty out of this is it releases us from preoccupation with ourselves and with our needs and with our life. And it lets us look up and look around and say, hey, where is God asking me to answer somebody else's prayer? Where can I, who in the room could use some attention, a hug, a question? If I'm always here, what's next? Okay, I want to order that. Can't wait till this happens. I just killed relationship with you. But if I say, God, I trust you, thank you. I'm not going to worry about that anymore. Bill, how are you doing? What's going on in your life today? It's good to see you. You know, this is the culture of God's after. How do we step more fully into that? So as we worship for the next couple of songs, uh, ask God. Let me pray for you. Peter, uh, come on up. Sarah, yeah, let's get ready to worship.
Father, thank you that you've never used authority to harm anyone. Thank you that you can be um, fully trusted. Thank you that your will is always for the good of people, that we would be whole and that we would be full of joy, that we would be grateful, that we would live in all that you intended us to. And God, we want that. We desire that. We want to be a people, a community that lives in that culture. And God, we know that the key to that is where we are at and how well we are walking with you and submitting to you and resisting worldly ideas and worldly ways. So, Father, we ask you right now, Holy Spirit, would you show us where we could grow right now? where we could be set free from a desire that's just selfish or that's empty or that's unnecessary. Uh, God, we ask you to give us new desires. Help us desire what you desire. Cleanse our hearts right now. Help us wash our hands. If there's a place we need to confess, we ask you to show that to us. We just ask you, God, in this next few minutes, would you talk to us personally? Help us step deeper into this disposition of humility and trust so that we can receive the fullness of life that you have for us. In Jesus' name. If you came after we took communion, you're certainly welcome to take communion now. And the giving boxes are also up here for giving. But beyond that, let's listen. Let's worship.